Okay, Vayechanan. So this week is Shabbat. We call Shabbat Nachamu, the Shabbat of comfort. Right? And Friday, this Friday, is we have a holiday. It's called Tu Be'av. So Tu Be'av is Friday. And uh, Shabbat Nachamu is, sh- is Saturday. Some years when Tisha B'Av falls on Thursday, then Shabbat Nachamu is really just two days later. So the question really is to try to understand how Shabbat Nachamu, what it is, and what is Tu Be'av. <coughs> and how does it relate to Tisha B'Av? So we just had Tisha B'Av this year. We did it on Sunday because it came out on Saturday, so we pushed it forward one day. And uh, this year, because it was a Saturday, we didn't have all the restrictions of Shabbat Shachalbo, and, and we, uh, we didn't have the next day because we pushed it off to the next day. So normally when Tisha B'Av is on, say it's on a, a Thursday, we don't eat meat all day Thursday. I mean, we don't eat Thursday. But Friday, we still don't eat meat and we don't drink wine. And the question is why? And it's because of the fire of the burning of the temple started on the night, of, started on Tisha B'Av in the evening, okay. and it continued all through the 10th day. So in the Gemara, there's a debate whether they should fast on the 9th or on the 10th. And in fact, in the times of the Second Temple, they fasted on both days, the 9th and the 10th, okay. because of the, the fire lasting the second day. <clears throat> so the, the question really is, if it's the 9th and the 10th and the next day is Shabbat Nachamu, how can we change our mood so quickly? How can we go from three weeks where we have no parties and no music and nine days where we have no meat and no wine and the week where we're not supposed to do laundry and not supposed to shower and all these other restrictions and no haircut and no shaving and all of a sudden you went from depression, depression, depression and then jump up and down and celebrate and all the boys and girls get together and we have Shabbos Nachamu in the mountains and we're going to all go find our uh, spouses. So if you have a huge you fire... Know, you know what two is, right? No? That we're going to explain now. Okay. I, I have some understanding that some of the um, so particular rules and things, it's very nice to hear. Whatever, whatever, since we're only us, whatever you want to stop, say stop, and we'll explain anything. Okay? So, just so, you, so I give a big class on Saturday. This is my prep for the class. So oh, you're my guinea pig. <laughs> okay. Ah, okay. So whatever you think, tell me, and that way we better understand what we should do. So... Okay. <laughs> So uh, it just helps. So basically, the, the, the other idea is anytime you have a huge fire, and imagine the whole temple is burning, the, the smell of the fire lasts for a few days after. It just doesn't dissipate. So, so it, it's, the other thing is difficult to understand is the temple was made out of what? Out of stone. stone. And stone... Very little combustible. Stone doesn't burn. Right. In fact, you know, you, you build a home... It's interesting when I, when I started seeing how they build houses in America compared to building houses in Europe. So in Spain, whenever we built a house in Spain, what do they do? They have a steel structure, and then they have, uh, they have the, uh, the, the concrete bricks, mm-hmm. right? And they lay the concrete bricks, and then they put the cinder, the cinder blocks, and then marble tiles on the, on the outside and on the inside, basically. And that's, that's the house. So in Europe, nothing could burn. Just the contents. But in America, they, they came to America and said, wow, they're building these houses and so expensive and all it is is a bunch of sticks coming together and slap on some uh, plywood on the outside and, and that's your house. So in the Benjamin Tash, what burns? Could only be the contents. And what contents are wood? The clothing that they left there, the tapestries that they had maybe on the walls, the books, 
but not the building. So the Ben Amitash, and you know, so you see in the Ben Amitash it says, but they needed wood from Lebanon in order to build it. So you say, what was the wood for? It seems the wood was for the scaffolding and to make the forms and to whatever else they needed to build it. But we see the whole Bet HaMikdash was built out of stone. And now in fact, the beams of, of the roof? That's the Mishkan. Oh, <clears throat> those skins? That's the Mishkan with skins. Right, but but the in the Bet HaMikdash, yeah, could be, could be the beams. But, but it's interesting that, that, what's, that Rambam says, no, you don't use wood to build the Bet HaMikdash. It's all built out of stone. So if it's all built out of stone, again, the question comes, what burned? We have even the Midrash tells us that we're not allowed to use iron on the stones to build. So the Midrash tells us that King Solomon found a special worm, and this worm ate stone, and they were able to direct these worms in order to eat the stone in certain places in order for the stones to fit together. And the Gemara tells that they still had these worms in the time of the second temple. Oh, really? Yeah, so I saw in the, Mish- in the Mishnah Sotah 9.12, it says the Shamir wasn't extinct until the destruction of the second Bet HaMikdash. Now the second Bet HaMikdash, we know that they originally built it out of wood because they had no money. They came back from Babylonia, Ezra built it, but we know the second Bet HaMikdash was rebuilt by Herod. And Herod built the eighth wonder of the world. It was this most incredible stone marble building that no one could imagine. That, that, they, that they said that you see the floor and it looked like the sea. That's how beautiful the stone was. Mm. So again, what's going to burn? The first Mikdash, the second Mikdash. The Gemara tells us what happened in the period of the destruction. It says on the seventh day, the Babylonians came and they made a party in the Mikdash. In the eighth day, they all got together to decide what they're going to do with it. On the ninth day, they decided to burn it down. In the afternoon of the ninth, they lit the fire and the tenth, the fire lasted. But again, the question was, what burned? So what happens to the building itself? If you go to Ir David today, you see stones all down off the side of the mountain. If you see the Kotel, the Kotel is made out of stones, even though this was built so many years later. So you have to assume the Ben Amikdash was made out of stones either that size that you see at the Kotel or larger. So if you had those stones, how do you, what do you do to those stones? So one opinion is... You know, and then what happens? So if there's a fire and the structure is still there, what do you do? You rebuild it the next day. You have a synagogue burns down. I remember when KJ burnt down uh, three, four years ago. They had the big fire on 80, 85th Street. Oh. They had a huge fire. The temple burnt down. And the next day they had an email sent out and a committee of who's going to do what and how we're going to rebuild. And they start rebuilding from the next day. So if the, if, if the structure was still there, you would still rebuild. Rabbeinu Bachya is one of the rabbis in the 12th century. He says, no, you know what happened? He says the whole stone structure lifted and went up to heaven and disappeared. Okay, that's a hard one to, to follow. The rest of the rabbis say what happened. In the days following the destruction, the Romans came and they used these, uh, these uh, ramming uh, tools, you know, 200 guys pushing this, uh, this beam and basically cracked the stones and broke the stones, and that's what they did. So if, in fact, that happened, you would have the 9th and 10th burning, the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th doing demolition. becomes demolition days. So the problem then is, if those are the demolition days, or those are when the smell is still going on, how do we go from a period where we start three weeks before of mourning to just stop and jump for joy? Why don't we continue another week of mourning? 
when we have morning, we generally continue our week. Why does it, how does it change so quickly? Have a thought? Yeah, well, I think that the way, the way we do it now, it's simply a calibration because when it actually happened, we, we didn't have that break at, at uh, day 15. We, we kept mourning maybe for the whole year, mm-hmm. but uh, the calibration happened at a different time, different, on a different year. Then when we institutionalize, then we'll put that break in there. Uh-huh. To be right after. Not to ease out of the... Right. Just because, remember, we're building our morning up from, a, right. from, from the three weeks before where it's a low level to that day where it's a very high level. So it almost seems normal to take your morning now and say, okay, now no wine and no this, now this, okay, a couple of days later we'll take a haircut, and a couple of days later we'll do this, and then we jump for joy. Here it could be from the 9th to the 11th. The 11th could be Shabbat Nachamu, and everyone went and they're all dancing and singing. Well, isn't also part of it that if we're going to wait like three weeks plus ten days, that's thirty-one days, or three weeks and a week. Yeah. Or or don't make it three weeks. Only make nine days before and then a week after. Well, my, my point is that in, in, when we do actual morning. Yeah. Okay. Uh, on sh- on Shoshim, we it shave. ends. We shave it ends. Exactly, but in this case, we should it, should it, in this Ashashim, case, Ashashim may, is on, on, on So may, maybe maybe the morning should start on the ninth. I mean, for the nine days, for the first nine days, forget the three weeks. Start on the first, go to the ninth, and then continue until the fifteenth or sixteenth. Now it could be the eleventh. You're jumping for joy. That's yeah. that's yeah. the question. Yeah. So it's, it's actually the question that Rizal brings. He brings what's the whole idea. So the, the interesting thing is that Tu Be'av is, the Gemara says, Tu Be'av is the happiest day of the year. The 15th of Av is the happiest day in the year. So the Gemara says, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel said, there never were greater days of joy to Israel than the 15th day of Av and Yom HaKippuri. He says, on these days, the young girls of Jerusalem would go out in white garments, which they borrowed in order not to shame anyone. So basically everyone borrowed a garment from someone else so no one knew who was rich and who was poor. And they all went out into the vineyards and they would go, like it says, they would go out into the vineyards and they would grab a husband and tell a guy, hey, you marry me. And hopefully it went okay. So you see, there wasn't just, a, you know, they talk about the crisis, you know, the marriage crisis Should today. Crisis. It wasn't crisis only today. It was a crisis. They write about it in, the, in Europe in the, in the 20s. And we see it in the time of the Gemara that they had to figure out what to do. So there were two days a year that they had Sadie Hawkins days and tell the girls, <laughs> go grab a guy. So it says the, the, the happiest day of the year was this day. This is the happiest day. And then they compared this day to Yom Kippur. So the question is why? What happened on this day that it was so happy? You could understand really Yom Kippur because Yom Kippur is a day of forgiveness. We walk out of Yom Kippur, we say God forgave us, we get to start new, we took a, you know, we sort of washed all our sins away, we smile and move forward. What's so special about Tuba'ah? So the Gemara lists six items, six things that happened on Tuba'ah, six events. The first event is so we read a few weeks ago about the daughters of Slofahad. These were the daughters from the tribe of Menashe. They were five girls whose father died in the desert. The five girls were left. There was no brother. And these five girls come to Moses and say, Moses, we want to inherit a part of the land. And you don't have anywhere for girls to inherit. 
So Moses says, you know what? Fair question. Let me call God. Dials the bathroom. Beep, 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 beep. Right? Says, God, we have a question. God answers the question and says, yeah, they're right. They should inherit the land. Now the problem is, if these girls are from this tribe of Menashe, and they inherit the land, and they go and marry a guy from, the, from a different tribe, then that means a different tribe is inheriting the land. So they made a restriction that the girls could only marry from their own tribe. Boom. What happened is, years later, on the 15th of Av, they said it's not fair that you're limiting who people could marry. We're going to open it up and anyone can marry anyone from any tribe. And that took place on the 15th of Av. And that's why it's the happiest day of the year. Seems strange. We have another story from the book of Shoftim about a piece called Pilegesh Begiva, the concubine of Giva. There was a, a terrible, tragic story about a visitor who came to a town of Benjamin and he brings with him his concubine and the locals rape, his, rape her and murder her. And what does he do? He's so upset that no one does anything about it and there's no justice. He takes her body and he cuts it up in 12 parts. He sends each part to one of the heads of the tribes. And the tribes decide that they're going to take this tribe of Benjamin where this atrocity took place since the tribe did nothing to prevent it. And they're going to excommunicate the entire tribe. The rest of Israel will have nothing to do with the tribe of Benjamin because they allowed the atrocity to take place. Eventually, it looks like the tribe of Benjamin is going to be wiped out. There's not going to be a tribe again. And what they do is they decide years later, okay, we're going to let them back in. We're going to marry, let them marry into the rest of the Jewish people. And the, uh, the tribe of Benjamin is saved. When does this happen? On the 15th of Av. And therefore, it's the happiest day of the year. Okay. Next one. And stories. These are the stories. The next one. So when the Jewish people left Egypt, we had the, the problem. They went and they sent the spies into the land. The spies went in the land. They come back on the night of Tisha B'Av, and they, the, day, the day before Tisha B'Av, and they tell the, the people, it's terrible, we're not going to go in. All the people get nervous. They all cry. And that night, since they cried, God says, you know what? You're not going into the land. We're going to wait 40 years. All the people who are in the desert now are going to die. The next generation will go in. So now you have 600,000 men who are between 20 and 60. All 600,000 are going to die. How do you kill 600,000 people? You don't kill them overnight. So what they did was, as each group reached their 60th year, so if you took 600,000, divided it by 40, you have about 15,000 a year. So whoever reached their 60th year, or thought they reached their 60th year, they went out on Tisha B'Av, on this night. They went into the desert. They dug their graves. Each guy dug his own grave. He lay down in the grave. The next morning, they came and they closed the graves. If anyone didn't die that night, he realized he still had another year. He didn't get his mother, didn't tell him his birthday right. And he had another year and he got up. Wake up. <clears throat> but whoever wasn't died. <laughs> this last year of the desert, the 15,000 go out into the desert, on Tisha B'Av, lay in the graves. And the next morning, they come out to, Nobody to bury them. And Moses says, if anyone's up, get up. And every one of them gets up. Moses says, something's wrong. Maybe the calendar's off. So the next day, they do it again. And they go back in the graves they dug the night before, and Moses comes back and says, anybody up? They all get up. So they do this for the next few days, and finally on the 15th of Av, 
Moses realizes it's a full moon. I didn't make a mistake on the calendar. And something else happens. God talks to Moses again on the back phone. So what happened is, after the incident of the spies, God basically cuts Moses off from using the bat phone for 38 years. The only way God was able to, Moses was able to communicate with God, so to say, was through text message. He didn't want a direct message. There wasn't this direct one-on-one conversation like he had with him all the time, which they say is, is through like a clear glass. Now Moses was separated from God because the people sinned in the desert. On this 15th of Av of that year, God talks to Moses again, like on day one. And Moses realizes everything's changed. These 15,000 don't die. And therefore, it's the happiest day of the year. Forget the fact that the 585,000 all died. Mm -hmm. But these 15,000 didn't die, so therefore it's the happiest day of the year. Again, it doesn't seem, right? Event number four. We have King David. After King David is King Solomon. After King Solomon, he has a son. His name is Rehoboam. So King Solomon taxed the people heavily. And the people, after he died, said, you know what? No more, no new taxes, right? Whatever was George, no new taxes. And, and Rehoboam, his advisors tell him, his father's advisors say, listen, Rehoboam, the people had it with your father. He, he taxed them a lot. You're a new king. You're coming into power. You're going to be around for a while. Tell them, you know what? They're right. Relax. We're going to take back taxes. And in a couple of years, you'll tax them again, whatever you want to do. But when you come into being king, go in with a very soft hand. Go in very nice. And the people will have respect for you. They'll love you. And they'll care about you. And so he has his friends who tell him, are you crazy? If you don't push them now, they'll never respect you. So Rehoboam gets up in front of all the people and he says, my father beat you with whips. I'm going to beat you with chains if you don't do what you're supposed to do. What happens? Ten tribes revolt and secede. And they bring a new king. And the new king is Yerobam ben Nevat. So there's now the ten tribes under one king, the two tribes under another king. Now what happens is you're supposed to go to the temple every year to worship God. The problem is in the temple there's only one chair. Who gets to sit on the one chair? The king of Judah, which would be Rehoboam. So Yerobam says, I'm not letting my people go to the temple, because if they go to the temple, they're going to see he's the king, and then they're not going to want me to be their king. So what does he do? He puts guards up along the road so that nobody can go to Jerusalem. Right? There's, uh, just like today, you know, so <laughs> from the, <laughs> he says he puts guards up. Stories, wow. So you see, there's a lot of stuff. He puts these border across all, all over. No one could get to Jerusalem. And to give them an alternative, he sets up a temple in the north and one in the south. And in each one, he puts a golden calf and tells the people that's what you should worship. That means there's much more to the golden calf than we could understand. Centuries later, there's a new king. His name is Hoshea ben Elah. He's the king of Israel at that time. He's actually the last king of Israel before Sanherib comes and destroys them. And he believes in freedom of religion. So he says, you know what? I don't want to spend all this money on the guards and all the things. We're going to open up all the borders. Whoever wants to go to Jerusalem can go to Jerusalem. If you want to worship there, worship there. Now, even though he's the last king and whatever he did didn't last for too many years, the day he made his proclamation was Tuba'ab. And therefore, it is the happiest day of the year. Again, why? Finally, (laughs) another crazy story. Now, the temple destruction takes place. Approximately 68 or 70 of the common 
common era, the second, the second temple's destruction. The Romans destroyed the temple, so it's 1950 years ago. Uh, approximately 60 to 70 years after the destruction, probably 70 years after the destruction, the Jewish people revolt and they form an independent government again and they revolt against Rome. And their leader is a man named Bar Kokhba. There's the Bar Kokhba Revolution. And we have actually coins that are minted during the Bar Kokhba Revolution. And for three years, they had an independent state. They have this independent state and they're going to, they revolt against Rome and they want to have Israel again. Rome decides to send the legions and they're going to destroy, they're going to, they're going to put down the revolt. They put down the revolt, and the place of the, the main place of defense is a place called Betar. The Romans apparently in Betar kill anywhere from a few hundred thousand to over a million people, depending on whose story you read. The, uh, it's written extensively by, uh, the story is written about it by, uh, by what's his name, the historian? Uh, Josephus. Josephus, and his writings you see about all, all that happened in that period. The Gemara talks about it. The Talmud talks about it. Now, what happened? The Romans wanted to prove that they were going to make sure there's going to be no other revolts because the Romans actually didn't care if Jews worshipped anyone they wanted to worship as long as they were part of the Roman system, paid taxes to the Roman system, and did what Rome wanted them to do. They really would have given them freedom of government to a certain extent and freedom of religion because everywhere Rome ruled, they let locals rule as long as you paid them the vig, and you had the Romans do whatever they want. But the Jews kept revolting, so they were going to get rid of the Jews, for, and they were going to make sure there was going to be no more revolts. What did they do? They took all of the bodies, anywhere from 300,000 to a million bodies, and they basically piled them as, as uh, walls, fences along the road. So you had miles and miles of bodies piled up on top of each other. And if you lived in that country, you were going to remember never to revolt against Rome, similar to the crucifix and similar to the other ways that they showed that they were in charge. There was a miracle, and even though those bodies sat for three years, those bodies did not decay. After three years, the, uh, the Roman Caesar dies. The Caesar dies, the new Caesar comes into power. When he comes into power, he says, bury the bodies. The day he came into power and he said, bury the bodies, was too bad. And therefore it is the happiest day of the year. Again, doesn't make sense. Finally, we have the sixth, the sixth one, with the, which the Gemara brings. And the sixth reason the Gemara brings is this. Now, the, the, the problem with all of these reasons is if I take a computer and I put in any date in history, any date, I see everything that happened on, on this day in history, I could find a whole bunch of good things that happened on that day, and why isn't that day the happiest day of the year? These things, none of them seem so monumental to make them the happiest day of the year. The sixth thing is that in the time, it, it, at the end of, this, uh, end of the temple, what happened was the, there were so many enemies crossing through Israel between the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, all who were going through, they cut down all of the trees. There were no trees. So the problem is with no trees, it means there's no wood. Now in the temple, you needed wood because you wanted to burn the sacrifices. And there's a commandment every day to bring two pieces of wood and put them on the altar in the morning and two pieces of wood and put them on the altar in the evening. Now, so you needed wood. There's another problem that the wood that went into the temple couldn't have any worms. 
If the wood was wormy wood, then you couldn't use the wood. Today we actually have wood, wormy oak and wormy, that, that has the holes in it that people use and think is beautiful because it has this, uh, you know, the, the results of the worms. In any event, those days you couldn't use wormy wood. So the, the priest had to open up each piece of wood to check. They made a rule though that the only wood that could be cut to avoid worms was during the driest season of the year. The dry season is from the end of June, the end of Sivan, and it extends until the 15th of Av. So on Tube Av, there was no more cutting wood. So since the lumberjacks got off from Tube Av forward, that became the happiest day of the year. It was their union, they made a holiday <laughs> like Labor Day, and that's it. So again, strange. But these are the reasons that the Gemara brings. So that's why we have our biggest celebration. Now, if you go back to the reason about the bodies that didn't die, that didn't, that didn't rot and that we were able to bury, we have the longest, the longest prayer that we have to say every single day. Is, and the only one that's commanded by the Torah is Birkat Amazon, the blessing we say after we eat food. So Birkat Amazon is made up of four blessings that are combined. The first blessing is Hazan et was Moses wrote. He wrote that about the man that God gave us. The second blessing was written by Joshua when they came into the land, and it's the blessing of the land. The third blessing is the blessing of Jerusalem, and that was written combined by David and Solomon, who built Jerusalem and the temple. Now, even though all of the prayers that we have were written by a group called Anshei Knesset HaGetolah, the Sanhedrin, who was at the time of before the second temple, we have one, we have this fourth blessing, which is the longest blessing of Birkat Amazon, which was, which was written after this incident of these bodies that were buried. And we have a whole blessing, the longest blessing, that's called Hatov Hametiv, the, the good one who does good. And that was written in appreciation that the bodies didn't decay and we were allowed to bury them. Hatov is that the bodies did, the good one is because the bodies didn't decay. The Hametiv is because we were allowed to bury them. And that we say every time we eat, we're supposed to remember that event. Again, the question is, and that event took place on Tuba'av. So the question is, it, it's, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's like, you know, what are they telling us? Why are they telling us all this? So then we try to figure out how the, all, these, all these things come together and how we get an answer, a single answer, based on all of it. So we always compare Tu Be'av to Yom Kippur. The Gemara says Tu Be'av and Yom Kippur are the happiest days of the year. We know Yom Kippur in the Torah, we're told to fast on the 10th day, but in another place in the Torah it says to fast on the 9th day. So we say you really can't fast the 9th and the 10th. So what we do is we eat a lot on the 9th in order to be able to be prepared to fast on the 10th. But the Torah really says fast on the 9th and fast on the 10th. It says we also have the five restrictions that are on Yom Kippur, no eating, no drinking, no anointing oneself, no bathing, etc. We have the same restrictions on Tisha B'Av. And in Tisha B'Av, we also have the 9th of Av and the 10th of Av. Similar to Yom Kippur, where we have the 9th and the 10th. Now, when we finish Yom Kippur, when we just, we, we went through the whole day, we come to Ne'ilah, we prayed, we blow the shofar, we do all those last, uh, you know, singing songs. And finally, everyone leaves, and they're happy, and they feel good, and they're going to go home and eat because they were successful in Yom Kippur. The question is, we come into Yom Kippur, we say that we're filled with sins when we come in. 
Do we know if our prayers on Yom Kippur were successful or not? How do we know? So they tell stories. One rabbi, the Khatam Sofer, he walked out of Yom Kippur one year. He says, it worked. Then he comes to Hoshana Rabbah, which is two weeks later. And he says, I don't know if it worked. And a few weeks later, he dies. I mean, crazy stories. And you have people who go to certain rabbis. Forget about that. So he says that the question really is, does Yom Kippur, did it work or didn't work? So the rabbis tell us when we finish Yom Kippur, we could hear maybe in our ear, maybe in our soul, a voice from heaven that says, you did good, go home and eat. He says, but how do we know what the verdict was? How do we know if we were successful? How come we're not more nervous? He says, and then look what happens. Right after Yom Kippur, we prepare for Sukkot, and on Sukkot, it's supposed to be the happiest time of the year. But Yom Simchatenu, we go out into the Sukkot, we celebrate, we carry the lulav, and as if we're victorious, it's a symbol of our victory. He says, we're supposed to be so happy, but how do we know if we're even going to be judged good or not? We walked out of court, we didn't hear the verdict, and we have confidence that it should be good. The rabbis tell us that Hashem is a, is a God of mercy. And Hashem is always looking for us. It says, Hashem is someone who is someone. Hashem wants us to return to Him. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to be close to Him. He wants to forgive us. So we learn that when a person sins, there's a, there's a way of regretting. A person has to regret. He has to admit that he made the sin. He has to regret that he made the sin. He has to ask for forgiveness. And he has to commit that he's not going to do it again. So, so that's, is that what we mean by teshuvah shalema? So that's complete teshuvah. So the question is, what is incomplete teshuvah? I only smoke half a cigarette on Saturday. Is that my incomplete teshuvah? Okay, God, you know what? I won't smoke the whole cigarette on Saturday. I only want half. And that's, what, what is it? So it says that Hashem looks at a person that the person regrets and he has to, he has to feel it, he has to commit, and he has to, he has to say he's not going to do it again. And then Hashem, if not, Hashem's not going to accept. And we always say to Hashem, return us with complete teshuvah before you. But it's not up to God. We tell God to return us with complete teshuvah. What do you mean? It's not up to God. It's up to us. So the Gemara says this is a strange statement. And it goes further and it says something even stranger. It says if a person is not happy with how much money he's earning, and he wants to double his income, the exact word of the Gemara, it says, Koflim parnasato, doubling his income. He says, what does he have to do? It says, Kol hameshatef sa'ar shamayim. Anyone who feels the pain of heaven says, you want to double your income? This is what Gemara says, feel the pain of heaven. Anyone who feels the pain of heaven, says the Gemara, he says it's koflim parnasato, he doubles his income. Again, what is it talking about? So the example that we have is this. Imagine a father who learns that his son did something wrong. He finds out his son did something terrible. So the father is sad that his son did something terrible. The father feels shame that the son did something terrible. Now the son is going to try to make up for what he did. So say he stole something. So he's going to go return it, or he's going to make up to the person he, he hurt. But he has to do something else also. He not only hurt the person who he did the crime to, he hurt his father who he made sad and who he brought shame to. So it says that when we do something wrong, we in essence hurt Hashem, 
And we bring him shame because he's embarrassed that we're his children and this is our behavior. He's hurt that we didn't do the right thing. So he says, based on the Gemara, the Arizal is saying, that a person, he sins, he has to admit, regret, commit himself not to do it again, but he has to do something more. He has to feel the pain and the shame that he caused to God. He says, that what, that's what Teshuvah Shalema is. He says he feels Hashem's pain. He feels sad that he upset Hashem. And, and the Arizal is saying, forget the deed for the moment. Forget the sin that the person committed. He says, this is aside from the deed. He says, the only way to do complete Teshuvah is to realize that we have to have empathy for what God is feeling about what we did. He goes on and he says, you see how much empathy means to God. There's many times in the Torah that God talks about empathizing with another person. Someone who has less, someone who's in a difficult position. Hashem is looking for us to be empathic people. So he says, this is on top of the Teshuvah. Says that this is where Hashem wants us to. He's rotzei b'teshuvah. This is a very high level. This is called empathy. Says the height of Yom Kippur is not when we say alchet, not when we say I'm sorry. He says the height of Yom Kippur is when a person comes to realize that I have to feel bad that through my actions I cause pain to God, I embarrassed God, and God feels bad. God's my father. He looks down and he says, "This is my child." And this is what my child did. It's not that we did the sin. He could forgive the sin. The sin is not what's the crucial thing. The crucial thing we have to remember is that we hurt God in some way. We brought God shame. So what do we have to do? We have to regret that we caused him the shame. And we have to sort of feel the pain that we caused God. This is what the Gemara is saying. It says that we have to understand that as a result of the sin... He says that Arizal, worse than the sin that we did is the pain that we brought to Avinu Shabbat The rabbis explain that this is the key to Yom Kippur. If we feel the pain, this is Teshuvah Shalema. He says, then if we felt God's pain on, on Yom Kippur, then we have a few days later Sukkot. We have the Avot, the fathers, the Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, they're coming to visit the Ushpizin. We have Yom Simchaten, we have the Lulav showing the victory. How do you know we won? The only way we know we won, the only way we know we were successful, is if we reach the level of worrying about God. If we reach that level, that's how we know. Then the rabbis ask a question, but what are they talking about? How does a person who worries about God double his parnasah? So the rabbis say, whatever you feel for God, God feels for you. Explains further. He says, God, you see me struggling. You see me, I have difficulties. You see, business is not so good. You see, I invest in a stock and it goes down. You see, I don't invest in a stock and it goes up. God, I'm suffering. It says that God is suffering with you. Why? Because if you suffer with God, then God suffers with you. And therefore the Gemara says, if you feel the pain of Hashem, of Shamayim, of heaven, then Shamayim feels your pain. It seems amazing that Hashem stresses so often this empathy. It says, we come to two Be'av. We finish the ninth and the tenth of Av. It's similar to Sukkot. Tuba'av is the fifteenth of Av, similar to Sukkot, which comes on the fifteenth of Tishrei. We have Tishra Be'av, which is very similar to Yom Kippur, coming then to Tuba'av or Sukkot. There are so many comparisons. At the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash, the Gemara and Chagigah says 
that Hashem himself is mourning the destruction. When the palace is destroyed below, Hashem exiles himself from the palace above. The Gebarah goes so far to say that Hashem is crying. The angels are asking Hashem what's wrong. He says, I'm upset that look what my children did down below. How could I be alive? How could I be up here? It says, our mourning, the three weeks, the nine days, the week, the day, it's not just that we lack a mikdash. We mourn because Hashem is forced to see what happened to his children. There are many stories in the Gemara describing how Hashem felt, uh, the attempts that were made to comfort Hashem. The minute he saw that we emphasize that we suffer, he says that Arizal is saying something unbelievable. He actually uses a term is that we caused Hashem to become homeless. It's just an unbelievable concept because, because Hashem refuses to be in his palace above if we're not in our temple below. So Hashem exiles himself. And this is what we say, the exile of the Shekhinah. The exile of the Shekhinah is Hashem exiling himself. The main thing is not simply the loss of the Mikdash. We mourn that Hashem feels bad, that we made Hashem homeless. It's, it's, an, it's a very powerful image. It's a homeless, powerful uh, thought. No, we made Hashem homeless, period. Once when oh, the, the temple, temple is destroyed, okay. Hashem is homeless until there's a temple. Hashem says, Asuli Mikdash, Veshachanti Betocham, build me a temple and I will dwell within the people. If there's no temple, I'm in exile. So all the time, so what, the interesting thing is when we do Tikkun Chatzot, we have a, a mitzvah to get up in the middle of the night and cry over the temple. What are we crying over? Not the destruction of the temple. We're crying over, if you look at the, the words, we're crying over the fact that the Shekhinah, the spirit of Hashem, so to say, is in Galut, is in exile. And who caused it? Us. We're crying because we feel bad that we did this to Hashem. Rabbi, when you kapara, is kapara part of the pain? So this is interesting. So that's, you, you have really is the answer. I'm going to show you right now that the kapara is the answer. So, so we mentioned last week the story of Abraham Avinu, the way Al Naharot Babel, we have, we sat out Sham, we there, we were crying, and Hashem was crying with us. So Tisha Be'av could be, a, we, 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 could be a duplicate of Yom Kippur, because we caused Hashem pray, to pain, we pray that Hashem, now just to answer your question, but Tisha Be'av could, I mean, sorry, Tu Be'av and Tisha Be'av could be even higher level than Yom Kippur, and this is how. The Gemara explains. If you see all those things that happened on Tu Be'av, all the lists, people could marry each other again, people could join together as a community, people could bury each other, it shows something called Kapara Shelema. What's Kapara Shelema? It says Yom Kippur brings Silicha, forgiveness, umechila, two terms of forgiveness. But we hope for Kapara. When do we have Kapara? Only on only on Tu Be'av from Tisha Be'av. What does that mean? So Kapara is when, I, when my grandmother drop a plate, right? She says Kapara. What does that mean? So it should be the plate breaks and that should be whatever punishment was going to happen so the person shouldn't be harmed. That's Kapara. Kapara is a alternative to the substitution. substitution good. A substitute for the punishment. So it says when Hashem destroys the temple, what does Hashem say? I took out my wrath. If you look in this week, the beginning of this week's parashah, it's very interesting how the Ben Ishai brings that the temple should have been destroyed 882 years. Hashem destroyed it two years early. Why? So that it could be kapara 
for the people and it wouldn't be permanent. So I'm going to destroy the wall. I'm going to destroy the, the stones. I'm going to take out my anger on the stones instead of on the people. And that's what the kapara is of Tisha B'Av. He says, if you look at it, the last year in the desert, they dug their graves. What was the zechut of that generation that they didn't die? He says, maybe those people realize they're on the verge of going into the land. And now they have to realize that they're going into the land. Hashem is coming to the land with us. And by not, not going into the land before, what did we do? We kept Hashem out of the land. They felt Hashem's pain. And since they felt Hashem's pain, there was a zechut that they didn't die, those last 15,000 people. It says the ninth of Av and the 10th of Av is burning. He says, we finally, we come to the point that we see that Hashem is upset because we made Hashem upset. We caused Hashem the problems. So says, then what happens if we understand that, that it was us who caused Hashem to be upset and we feel Hashem's pain, then what happens? We come to Nachamu, Nachamu Ami. My nation, you should be comforted, you should be comforted. Not just us being comforted, but Hashem should be comforted because we have to comfort Hashem by the fact that we made Hashem, so to say, homeless. It says, for this empathy, if we have the empathy with Hashem, then Hashem says, I have empathy for you. And then what happens over the next seven weeks? We have the seven weeks of consolation. Hashem comes back each week with one of the Haftarot, which is to be to console us. It says, the key is to remember that the destruction of the Mikdash did not simply harm us, but it caused the Shekhinah to go into Galut. We have to feel Hashem's pain. We have to realize that the fire burned, but only combustible things burn. The stone doesn't burn, the building didn't burn, the wood burned. And what is the whole idea with the wood, with the, with the tube'ab of stopping the cutting of the wood? Because what was the wood that they were cutting for? That was the wood that was in the mikdash, and that was the wood that burned. And we have to remember that we stop because there's no more burning. It's enough, it's over. We have to feel Hashem's pain, and we have to reverse it. So tube'ab is a celebration that our sorrow, that our pain, that our empathy for Hashem was accepted. And Hashem then is going to return that and feel for us. The no more cutting relates to no more burning. Like Yom Kippur is Yom Kapara. So Tu Be'av really is, is really the fulfillment of Yom Kippur for Kapara. We don't have it on Yom Kippur. It's not complete in Yom Kippur until we really have this feeling, right? This feeling of feeling for Hashem. So it's that, that Yom Kippur, we're, 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 going, we're, we're apologizing for the sin. But in, in, in Tisha B'Av, we're seeing the actual destruction. And that's the only time we actually see the kapara. And that's when the kapara should take, should take effect. And so we should realize that as we come to this Shabbat, which is Shabbat Nachamu, when we come to Tu B'Av, which is Friday, we should realize that it's the same celebration that we have on Sukkot, but even on a higher level. Because if we relate to Hashem, and we feel for Hashem, then Hashem will relate to us and feel for us, and that's when Hashem will then come back and do for us on the other side. Now, kapara could be involuntary. It seems in this case it's involuntary. We didn't ask to, to take the building. Hashem yeah. did it for us in order that we should not be killed. It's right. always involuntary. When my grandmother breaks the plate, she didn't want to break the plate. But after she breaks the plate, she doesn't feel bad she broke the plate because she knows so, that so breaking the I mean, plate means that so one of the kids didn't get hurt. So the Karush Baruch who figures ways of, of getting us the pain that we need in order to, to do... So, to, to try, no, to replace us with something else. That's where the whole idea of the sticks and stones. Take it out on the sticks and stones and not, not the people.